All right, Two Cities Church, those watching online, in the VHQ venue, in the lobby, in this room, welcome. It's uh, mid-October, which means I got some great news for you. 2020 is almost done. Praise the Lord. Woo! Yes! I don't know if you guys saw, I, I saw somebody tweeted, has anyone tried dipping 2020 in ranch? Okay, it's been that terrible of a year. It's been an unprecedented year in many ways. And, uh, and there's a lot that we're now looking forward to as we head toward the end of the year, right? We love, uh, of course, we've got the national election. Uh, but but on, after that, we've got basically all of our holidays. We stack them all at the end of the year. I don't know why we do this as Americans, right? Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year, then no holidays for a long time. Um, but we have four holidays at the end of the year, so we've got a lot that we're going to look forward to, a lot that we're going to celebrate. Um, but I want to take a moment, and I want to talk about the last seven months of our church. I want, I want to take a moment and celebrate what God has done, because it was seven months ago, almost exactly, that we had to shut everything down. And you guys remember that. Where, I mean, our whole nation did that, we did that as a church. And what ended up happening is we took everything online only immediately. This was back in March. And I don't believe in purgatory, but if purgatory is true, it would be like trying to lead an online only church for 15 weeks, okay? It, it, was, it was terrible. We didn't know where you guys were. We didn't know how you guys were doing. We didn't know when everybody was going to come back together. And then as we kind of understood the lay of the land, uh, after 15 weeks, we were able to bring people back on Thursday night. Many of you started to come back. That was in the end of June. And uh, so June 25th, we came back on Thursdays. Did that for 11 weeks, and we were learning masks and social distancing and cleaning high-top services and, and rethinking about how to do some things in this building. And we were able to do that because uh, we had 11 weeks to kind of work it out. And, and then for the last five weeks now, we've been able to come together on Sundays across three services. And I thank God because I was talking to somebody in California. And this is a pastor of California. He said this. I mean, just think about it if you live in California. He goes, I live in the strictest state in the strictest city in the strictest county in my city. He said, I, 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 something like, we're only allowed to have gatherings of 50 people. It has to be outside, and I have to write everybody's name down and take a record of who all was there. And he said, it's just so tedious. We've not had any gatherings of our church in over seven months now. So part of it is we just need to thank God that we're, we've been able to come back together. We need to pray for our nation, for our churches. There's obviously an election coming up. We say this all the time, but what a divided nation needs is a unified church. And so I would just love to pray. And let me just say this also. November 1st, November 8th, we keep mentioning it, is Baptism Sunday. Continue to pray about that. Is God leading you to be baptized and celebrate with us on one of those Sundays? And if you've got questions about the water, it's going to be the cleanest, safest, most sanitized water in all of Forsyth County. Okay? So um, let's, let's pray. And then we're going to dive into the book of Exodus together. Lord, we do want to take a moment, and it's just a good thing for us to do, and we just want to thank you publicly. We want to thank you that we've been able to come back together. We know that that's not true of every church. That's not true in every state. That's not true in every city. We don't want to take it for granted. I got a, I got a message yesterday or the day before of a church in Colorado that has to go backwards and has to take things away because of what's going on in certain areas of Denver and the new restrictions that are coming. And so, Lord, we just, we, I think one thing that COVID has taught us is to always be grateful for what we have. We're grateful for three gatherings on a Sunday. We're grateful to come together and sing like we just did. And we're super grateful now to look at your word. I pray that you would use your word uniquely as each one of these men and women have set aside time, whether they're online or they're here in the room, they've set aside time for weekly worship. Weekly worship. And I ask that you would bless it right now as we look at Exodus chapter seven. We pray this in your name, amen. Well, you can type two, turn to Exodus 7. So what we're going to do is we're going to cover four chapters. I know it's a lot. There's no way I can read it all, okay? You're going to have to this week, and I would encourage you to, read chapter 7, read chapter 8, read chapter 9, read chapter 10. It'll probably take you 20, 30, 40 minutes. Uh, it'll be really, really helpful. And basically what we're going to cover today is the first nine plagues. Now, I'll come back tomorrow. We'll talk about, or not tomorrow. 
we won't be here tomorrow. Um, but if you come back next week, um, I will cover the 10th plague and the Passover, and we're going to look at that. That's such an important uh, plague with so, many signif- so much significance. We're going to come back, spend a whole week just on that. But today we're going to kind of look at the first nine plagues. Um, and so we're going to cover mostly chapter 7, and then I'm going to touch on a couple other areas. Uh, but for you to get the full kind of feeling of this, I, I hope you'll take time this week to read all of those chapters. Uh, let me give you kind of the background so far. If you're new, we have new people every week. And so if you're new, it's a great time to be new. We always try to catch everybody up if you are new. Uh, so we've been looking at this guy named Moses. Moses is like one of the most famous guys in the whole Bible. You've probably heard of him. You don't have to grow up in the church to hear of Moses. One of the greatest men in all of history. And there's really four movements to Moses' life. There's Moses, kind of the miraculous with the midwives, right? He, he gets miraculously, the midwives rescue him. Then his mother hides him. Then he gets put in a little basket, goes down the river, and gets educated in Pharaoh's house. That's kind of the miraculous years of Moses' life. And then there's Moses the murderer. That's the second thing that shows up, right? We spend a lot of time talking about that, that sometimes God redirects your life through your sin or the sin of somebody else, and it's not a great thing. Usually we're like, we, we, we feel like we're lost when that happens. And what happens with Moses, and this, happened, this might, well, this is the case with all of us, right? Moses has a problem in his life that keeps showing up. We'll actually see this in weeks to come. Moses has a problem with anger his whole life. He's going to strike a rock when he should speak to it, right? Where he's going to get angry when, when he gets in the wilderness with the uh, Israelites. It's going to be a problem his whole life. Now, some of you, you're going to struggle with certain things your whole life. And God is going to be good and God is going to be gracious. But what we see is very early on in the life of Moses, he struggles with anger. It leads to murder, which leads to the third season of his life, which is his time in Midian, right? It's his, we call it the years of obscurity, right? And a lot of people feel like that's where they are. Nobody knows who I am. I don't know what my purpose is sometimes. I don't know what I'm doing. Sometimes we end up in Midian because we did something or somebody else did something or just kind of the unknown years. And he gets married. He has kids. Um, he, he gets discipled by Jethro. He grows to grows as a believer, which leads to what we're spending the rest of the book of Exodus looking at, which is Moses the mediator. Moses the mediator is he brings God's word to God's people, or just he brings God's word to people. And in chapters 7 through 15, he brings God's word to Pharaoh. And in 15 through 40, he brings God's word to God's people. And so if you'll, if you'll turn with me to chapter 7, verse 1, we're going to look today at the, these, this massive interaction between Pharaoh and Moses. Chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1 says this. And the Lord, and remember that's the word Yahweh, which means he is or I am. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Now let's stop there. What does that mean? That's kind of a strange thing. You're going to be like God to Pharaoh. What does that mean? Well, here's what that means. When a Christian is acting like a Christian, humbly, godly, and when you're bringing God's word to other people, the way they respond to that is how they would respond to God. It's a very interesting thing to think about. Like, this is actually why it's a good thing to understand as parents that your kids, the way that they, or if, you, if you're still, if you're a kid and you're still in the home, it's good to know that the way that you respond to your parents, if they're good, godly parents, it's basically how you respond to God. I remember when we were in college ministry, we all had people that were discipling us, and they would tell us often, the way that you're responding to your discipler is probably how you're responding to God. If you're hiding, if you're lying, if you're not consistent, it, that person is trying to be a godly influence in your life. You probably, I mean, it's hard to tell how your relationship with God's going. So you can look at how your relationship with somebody who's trying to invest in you is going. Somebody's trying to bring God's word to you, and it's probably very similar. And he's also preparing Moses. He's like, look, they're going to hate you, Moses, or Pharaoh's going to hate you, not because you're such a terrible guy, but because what you're doing is you're bringing my word to him. So that he sets the stage there. Verse one, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. And then look at verse 2. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. 
And by the way, that's the common, I think it shows up something like 10 times. Moses comes to Pharaoh, and it changes just a little bit, but almost every time he says some version of, let my people go so, and then it's a little different after that. But basically the whole time he says, let my people go. And so in this story, you have this conflict between Pharaoh and Moses, Moses and Pharaoh. You could also say good and evil. You could say God and Satan. You could say truth and lies. Now, when you read this, when you read the story of Moses versus Pharaoh, who do we tend to think we are? Well, usually we tend to think we're Moses, right? It's like, you shall not pass. We've got this big staff and we feel like that's who we are and we would be that type of person. Well, I actually think that the power in this story, and this is, this is actually a helpful tool just to read the Bible in general, and we're really reading all history, is if you'll read the Bible like you're the worst person in the story every time, it'll be very, very beneficial. So, you know, it's like, and, and this is true, because think about it this way, you know, um, we wish we were like Pharaoh. We wish we had the affluence, the autonomy to do whatever we want. Like, have you ever seen someone like Jeff, you know, Jeff Bezos, right? It's like, he's kind of the Pharaoh, you know, if there was such a thing as Pharaoh today. It's like, he has so much, you know, he has, owns 400,000 acres in Texas. He has so much money that he got divorced and he's still the richest person in the world. That's a lot of money. He's so wealthy and so successful. And I don't know what it is with like super, 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 super billionaire guys. They all try to get out of here. He's trying to go to Mars, yeah. right? Elon Musk is doing the same thing. Yeah. And what's interesting is, so you got these guys and, and, and you know, it's like, we like to think that if we were Pharaoh, if we had that much time, if we had that much money, if we had that much power, we would use it better. Maybe not. It's kind of like when, you know, t- uh, uh, Tiger Woods, when he got in trouble years ago, when he had all like those 20 different affairs with these women and all these people came out and said, I can't believe he did that. And it was wrong and it was sinful. And, and I love some of the responses was, yeah, well, you would never even have that opportunity. You think you're better than that, but, you would never, but if you're looking at pornography, are you not doing a similar kind of thing? Maybe you're just too scared. Nietzsche said, most men are not good men. They're afraid to be bad. And they basically, they're cowards who call their cowardism moralism. So, you know, it's like you, you, you think, like, you know, you, we watch Schindler's List, right? And we think we'd be Schindler. It's like, there's like three Schindlers in all of Germany, like three or four or five. The chances that you would be, statistically, the chances that you would be Schindler in Nazi Germany is 0%. The chances that you would have done what everybody else had done and gone along with it and more likely had been a Nazi guard, very, very high. And so I tell you all these things because these stories are written so that when we would read the story about Pharaoh, we would say, okay, I don't want to be like this. But what happens is, what happens with Pharaoh is he's standing there and Moses brings a word to him. Now, is it a word that he wants to hear? No, definitely not. Let my people go. Now, what, now here's the thing. Is Pharaoh offended that the Jews have a God that wants to be worshiped? No. Because we know, we don't know exactly, we know they had 80 to 90 gods, roughly, in Egypt. I can't get into all of them. We're going to talk about some of them as we, get, as we go on tonight. But 80 to 90 gods, so does he care if it's 81 or 91? No. What upsets Pharaoh, and it's the same thing that humbles us and, and upsets us oftentimes, is that God makes claims on Pharaoh's life and says, I am the only God. I am the God above every other God. I am the God who comes to you, and I ask you to repent, and I ask you to change. And what we see this, this whole time is that Pharaoh is going to, I'm just giving you kind of the overview so you can go and read this yourself in seven through, seven through 10. What Pharaoh does is he, he constantly hears the word of God and then rejects it. And this is interesting. To reject the word of God is to reject God. It's the exact same thing. This is why early on Pharaoh says something like, uh, who's the Lord? Which is a fair question. And he asks that question because God doesn't have any icons. God doesn't have any idols. 
God doesn't have any images. So what does God have? God, the only thing God, God has is his word. He cannot be contained or constrained in images. So he just has his word. And so you can't say, I love the Lord and I don't love his word. I'm following God, I'm just not obeying his word. It's the same thing. Now the question is, how do we reject the word of God today? We're, we're not kind of as, we tend to not be as blunt and bold as Pharaoh who just says, no, I won't do it. Right? Well, what do we do? We tend to rationalize it. We'll talk about this in a little bit, but we tend to tell ourselves rationalize. We tend to figure out how we don't have to obey it. Sometimes we reject the word of God by simply avoiding it. I mean, how many of us, right? We have Bibles on our devices, all of us. We have Bibles in our home. Is it not a, at least a soft rejection of the word of God to never open it up? Some people, they avoid whole environments like this because they don't want to be in environments where the word of God is going to be taught and brought to bear on their lives because then they know they would be accountable to something. If you ever want to know, and this is helpful to know, why do we talk about attendance? It's not like we're trying to get you know, seven people in that row and eight people in that row. That's not why we do it. Uh, Christians have always cared about attendance because attendance is usually, or lack of attendance, is almost always the first sign a person's not doing well. We're not talking about being on vacation. We're not talking missing a couple times because life gets crazy or someone gets sick. If somebody is consistently missing, it's usually, we're not trying to create witch hunts here, but it's usually a sign of, I don't know if I want to be in an environment where the word of God is going to touch this area of my life or I'm going to be asked questions where this will expose itself. So the first thing we need to see to understand this whole story is that we're Pharaoh. Once you understand this, the whole story opens up, which is the second big thing we need to see is that we, the tendency and temptation in our life is to do what Pharaoh does, which is to harden our hearts. Look, look and I want you to see this in verse three. We tend to harden our hearts. Uh, chapter seven, verse three, he says, God speaking, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Do you, do you. You'll see that connection again and again if you'll read, that the connection between a hard heart and not listening, it's the same thing. A definition of a hard heart is a heart that, through various different forms and ways, just decides and determines, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, that I'm just not going to listen to the word of God. I'm not going to let it have its say in my life. He says this, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So I want to talk about the hardening of the heart. Now, first of all, we have to ask, what is the heart? You know, it's not talking about just the muscle in your body, okay? The heart is the center, the sum, and the seat of who you are. It's the control center of your mind, of your will, and of your emotions, and this is interesting, historically, like if you, you know, our, our great, great ancestors, um, do you know where they thought the center of them was? Their stomachs. You'll, you'll read all this literature about the bowels, and you go, well, why would, that's kind of a silly idea. Well, think about it for a second. Why would they think the center of who they are is their stomach? Well, imagine that you were fearful all the time that somebody was going to kill you. And then imagine that you were hungry all the time, and you didn't know when you would eat next, which is what... Life has been like for most of humans, for most of human history. If you were always fearful and always hungry, you'd think this was the center of you too. Now, what do, where do Americans think the center of them is today? Up here, right? It's like, I'm so rational. I'm so calm, cool, collective. I'm so logical. No, we're not, right? We do illogical, rational, insane things a lot of times. It, it would be nice if we were like that, maybe. We're much more complex than that and comprehensive than that. We have this mind with will and these emotions. That's called the heart. 
And, and then this is interesting, and I want to talk about this because this is a major theme that shows up for eight chapters. It says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says his heart is hard. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart. It says all three of those. So the, the, the phrase hardened heart shows up nine times. Three times just like a statement, like Pharaoh's heart's hard. And you go, well, why and how and for what purpose and who did it and doesn't give us all those answers. And then another three times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart which is a scary thought. But we know that we can do that, right? You can harden your heart. You can look at things. Sometimes you harden your heart, I, don't, I won't listen. Sometimes you pursue certain things and you don't even realize that the, the effect of doing that is it's hardening your heart. You begin to get in a relationship you shouldn't be in, start to consume a lot of content you shouldn't be consuming. Sometimes you get hurt by somebody in the church, out of the church, I mean, who knows? And you just, you harden your heart, right? I'm not gonna trust anyone anymore. I'm not going to be a part of this anymore. And it's a hardening of the heart. The third way it's used is it says God hardens his heart. So think about it this way. Here's, what, here's, what here's what's happening. What we do actively, God then affirms. And it's, it, it's, it's supposed to, I think in the best sense of the word, terrify us, humble us. Because I think what we tend to think as Americans is we tend to think that we're in control of our hearts. And one thing we see here is the heart is definitely not neutral. It can love things, it can hate things. But we all, have you ever felt like, We've all had those feelings before, like, why do I love certain things that I wish I didn't love? I wish I hated that, but I love it. I wish I wasn't attracted to that, but I am. I wish I didn't love money, but I do, right? That's kind of like one of those things. It's like, well, we, we, we're not as in control of our hearts as possible. What we tend to think is, here's what I'll do. I will harden my heart just during college. Or that, I mean, if somebody says, hey, I'm not going to follow the Lord in college, but I'll follow the Lord afterwards, that, that's some kind of an idea that you and I can somehow determine and decide when we'll be done messing around with our heart. And we can harden it for a little bit. We, we are in total control of it. And what this teaches us, and it's, it's humbling and terrifying, is that sometimes we start down a path and God just says, fine, then I'm going to let you go down that path. I, I remember I was uh, at UNCG doing ministry there, and this was, was uh, trying to evangelize some student who was from a Christian home. And he said, I, he was a freshman there, and he said, I don't get it. I'm here. I'm at UNCG. I did ministry there before I went to, did ministry at Duke. So I was at UNCG and I'm doing ministry there. And, and I was really bothered by this because he said, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home and I got here and I've completely given into sin and it's going really, really well. And I don't even feel guilty about it. And I'm indulging in all of the things that I didn't used to do and my parents wouldn't let me do and my parents told me not to do. And I didn't have the language that I have now is, oh, that's what's called the passive wrath of God. That's when God gives you over to something. And it's very scary because sometimes it, it gets to the point where it, it seems that repentance is almost impossible. You fall so in love with your own sin. And so the, the, the great warning here is that we would not harden our hearts as the word of God comes to us. I want you to see what happens next. Turn with me to verse five. It says this, the Egyptians, this is God speaking, shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. So one of the ways to understand chapter seven through 10 or seven through 12 really is God's hand versus Pharaoh's heart. God's hand versus Pharaoh's heart or God's hand versus your heart. It says this, the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So now we're, we're moving toward the plagues. 
We heard their purpose. It's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But now we're told, like, so, so why 10 of them, though? I don't know if you thought that. Like, some people say, well, maybe 10 plagues because later there'll be 10 commandments. Maybe 10 because it's an easy number to remember. Why not just one? Because if you get to it, like, the 10th plague is, if you, if you don't know the story, I don't need to ruin it for you. You'll see next week. But the 10th plague is the one that gets the job done. And so there, there's a couple reasons for that. Every plague does at least two things. It shows the person and the power of God. It shows some characteristic of God. You know, God's in control over the air, so that's hail, or darkness, or God's in control over the human body, that's the boils, or, you know, God's in control over life, that's the livestock. God's in control over all water, that's the, the Nile River. So it's like, God, that, it tells us something about who God is. Um, a second reason is, it tells us something about the terribleness of sin. You know, it's really hard, like, you know, it's hard to be shocked by our own sin, I mean, it would be nice if we could see that sin is so terrible, but when God says, I'm going to give you boils on your body, because you don't understand how ugly sin is, so I'm going to give you a picture of it. You don't understand what it's like to live in darkness, which darkness in the Bible can mean secrecy. Darkness in the Bible can mean unbelief. You don't know what it's like, so I'm going to give you a dark land for three days where you can't see anything, and so you'll know what it feels like. You don't understand the seriousness and the destruction of sin, so I'm going to destroy a few things physically for you to see it. Those are the first two reasons. The third reason that, that we have these plagues is it's, it's actually God lovingly confronting the idols of the culture of that day. And one of the things that God will do often as we harden our hearts, it's actually a gracious act, is God will destroy the idols that we are worshiping in our life to often showing us how foolish they are. You know, this happens oftentimes, some woman or some man is in a relationship that he or she knows they shouldn't be in, but they feel powerless to get out of it, they don't wanna get out of it, and then God wrecks that relationship and they're completely heartbroken, but maybe two years later they're like, thank you, Lord. Thanks for taking that idol away in my life. There's somebody who their, their job falls apart or something happens and they realize, oh, thank God, because that was a total idol in my life. I was completely worshiping my career. Or there's some, some health issue and they realize, well, thank God, because I was so selfish with my time and I was giving everything to hobbies and this illness really woke me up. I mean, you'll hear a lot of stories in people's lives. We say all the time that God uses pleasure and pain. He whispers in pleasure, he uses a megaphone in pain. And so what we see here is God is going to, and I'm only going to touch on a few of them, but God is going to lovingly attack the idols of Pharaoh and the idols of the Egyptians to try and get his attention and their attention. So let's look at that. This is in chapter 7. Chapter 7 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. This is verse 14 and 15. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, same phrase he always says, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Verse 17, thus says the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Again, remember, that's one of the purposes and points of the plagues. That you would know the power and the personality of God. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile 
will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. So we hear the first plague is threatened and promised. And it's interesting, I wanna take a moment even as we go into these plagues, this is a question that people have asked before. Is COVID-19 a plague from God? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, I wish I had it. I, mean, I, I don't know. Uh, you, we're all looking for something intense. But I really don't know. We don't know. Here's why that's important, actually, because in the Bible, we get the, um, the divine event and the divine interpretation of an event. They're both really, really important, right? That's why you have gospel and epistle. What's gospel? Divine event, right? Jesus lives, Jesus dies, Jesus rises from the dead. What does it mean? The disciples are really confused about it. If you were standing at the cross, would you have any idea what's going on? Probably not. You need the divine interpretation of the event. That's why we have Paul's epistles and Peter's epistles and John's epistles. Now, with, with, we have an event, COVID-19. We don't have the divine interpretation of that. Now, is God using it? Absolutely, right? Is God using it to attack the idols of our day? I think so. The idol of autonomy? The idol of control? the obsession with health, the complete trust in this world alone to meet my needs, financial stability. I mean, there was this really interesting season I saw from about April 1st till about June 1st where I felt like there was, I'm speaking to some of my extended family that I spoke to, I'm thinking of just my own relationships. There was a softness to people. There was a spiritual openness to people as they were watching their idols collapse. Particularly the idol, when the stock market was down, people didn't know what to do. And as soon as it came back, everybody forgot. And everybody feels like they're doing, I'm thinking of people that I know, everybody thinks they're doing fine again because they're doing financially fine again. But God will often graciously bring something into our lives to get our attentions. Now the first thing he does here is he does it with denial. Now this is the God happy, can you believe that, isn't that funny? Yeah, God attacks our God happy as well, okay? That was the name of this Egyptian God. It was the God over the Nile. What did the Nile represent? It's like, what did the Nile not represent? It represented everything. It's, it's God's attack on identity. We say it all the time, right? Are you more Christian? Are you more American? What's your life about? It's also all about convenience, and it's all about comfort. That's what the Nile represented. It represented I can go get my food, and I can go wash my clothes, and I can go get a bath. And It, it was completely comfort. Now, do we... In America, struggle with the idol of comfort and convenience. Come on, just a little bit, right? Have you ever ordered something from Amazon and, it, and you get the checkout and it says, you know, you're a prime customer and all that, and it says, um, would, you, would you like us to just put all these together and, and ship it at a later date? Or would you like each one individually as soon as possible? Yes, right? We, we, we never like want it a couple days later. We love convenience. Like I had this new phenomenon in the last six months. I'm sure you've all done this, but getting your groceries online like, where, I'm, I'm living in the future. We're living in the future. <laughs> right? There's an app, and you just pull up, and you don't even get out of the car. And you just hit a button. And a person comes up, and just, you open your trunk, and they say, here you go, goodbye. And you don't even get out. <laughs> we are living, and we love convenience, streaming, social media. But here's what's so interesting. We have more time. We have more discretionary income. 
than we've ever had. We have, our homes are twice as big and our families are twice as small as they were in 1950. So instead of having four kids in a 1,500 person home, 15 square foot home, we have two kids in a 3,000 square foot home. And though we have everything that we could imagine, right, to, to give us comfort, we can't sleep, we're stressed, we're depressed, and we're anxious. Because there's a unique comfort that comes to the soul. And God attacks the idol of their day. The second idol is, um, it's like, well, you know, if you just read it, in chapter 7 and 8, it's like, well, chapter 8, it starts, the frogs. It's like, what's that about? Well, the god of the frogs was Heget, which was the god of fruitfulness, which was the god of both work and children. Like, there's two ways that they viewed fruitfulness. Okay, this god, Heget, will give me two things. If I'm faithful to this god, uh, he, she, whatever the god is, will give me both children, that's a fruitfulness, and will give me uh, great success in work. It's like, well, they're two different idols that different people worship, but is that not an idol? Sometimes the same people worship the same idols, both those idols. A lot of times someone worships the God of work or the God of kids or God of family. Uh, the Atlantic wrote an article a couple years ago called, um, it was all on this new phrase, I'd never heard of it, called workism. And they said the average millennial is, believes that they will find the majority of their identity, their value, their significance in their work in what they do as a career. So what we see is he, he, he gives us, the, the, he attacks the idol of comfort and convenience. He attacks the idol of sex, children, work. A couple other ones I want you to see real quickly. Um, you've got gnats and flies. That, that tends to be an attack on comfort, on cleanliness. Uh, the Egyptians love to be clean. And they just, when you have flies and gnats and everything, you can't get clean. Um, but then there's, there's three other idols I want to talk about. Boils, livestock, and hail. And they show up in chapters you know, eight and nine, and I believe the beginning of 10. Boils, livestock, and hail. Boils, what is that about? The obsession in our culture with health and with beauty. Do you know that Jennifer Aniston spends $20,000 a month on personal self-care? I don't know. Someone said on what? I don't know. I don't know how to spend. Uh, LeBron James, someone told me this after the second service. LeBron James spends $1.5 million a year taking care of his body and staying in shape, whatever that means, on top of everything else he does. And so you can see there's this obsession, right? We tend to do this. We tend to be, it's, it's a new kind of Phariseeism. We are obsessed with the external, not caring as much about the internal. Obsessed with the body, kale and CrossFit. <laughs> less obsessed with the soul. Prayer, repentance, integrity. And so there's, there's the boils, very, very painful as well. And then there's livestock. That's the, I've talked about this already. That was the attack on the economy. And then finally, hail. Now, what's hail about? And I had to think about this for a while. It, it is attacking the idol of control. Even in America, it's like there's very few things, COVID revealed this to us, but there's very few things in America that will remind us today that we're not in control normally. One of them is when the weather is out of control. Like, I know we've got 10-day forecasts and all this, but, like, if you've ever, like, in this last year, I remember my wife woke me up. It was, like, 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning. She wakes me up. She says, my phone's going off. It's a tornado warning. I'm like, is that worse than a tornado watch? You know what I'm saying? There's, like, there's both. There's tornado watch, there's tornado warning, and I didn't know which one was worse. I think, I think watch is, like, be careful, there might be one, and warning is like, we've seen one, okay? Um, and so she's explaining all this to me at like four in the morning, I'm like, oh man. And so she's like, let's go, you know, we didn't really have a plan for this, and we've got a small section of our basement that's pretty secure, and so basically she said, let's go get the kids. So it's like four in the morning, and you know, about half of me feels ridiculous, you know? And we're waking the kids up, and we're bringing them, and they're all upset that we're waking them up, and we're bringing them into the basement. And there was like a seven 
to 10 minute window where I felt both ridiculous and I had this sense, like about 10% of me was like, what am I going to do if this happens? Like I'm just not, I mean, I am so not in control. All I can do in this situation is get in the most secure part of my basement and hope this doesn't happen or if it does that everybody will be okay. And I think this is in it, that God is using this to say we're not ultimately in control. COVID's done that for us. But oftentimes, severe weather. We don't live in a place uh, in, in the world that gets tsunamis and different things, but there are people who are very, very aware that where they live, they are completely not in control of the weather and how it could affect them. So the first thing Pharaoh does is harden his heart. The second thing that God does in response to that is he attacks the idols that Pharaoh is worshiping. The third thing that happens is Pharaoh begins to fake repentance, right? He begins to want relief without repentance. And th this is, I think, what the stage is for us. It's like, all right, Lord, you're attacking my idols. I don't know if I want to fully repent, because that would mean turning away from them and changing and having a fundamental different way that I think about things, and that might, that's too painful and it hurts too much. So I want you to see, we do what Pharaoh does. Verse eight, look at verse eight of chapter eight. We're gonna to have to jump around just a little bit for you guys to see this. We're out of chapter seven, now into chapter eight. It says this, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron. This is right after the plague of the frogs. So it takes two plagues for Pharaoh to kind of wake up, just a little bit. And Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. So he gets what the Puritans called a severe mercy. Severe mercy is when God brings something very difficult into my life. Only the Puritans would call that a severe mercy. In that interesting phrase? A severe mercy is God's brought something hard into my life, but he has a good purpose for it. So he brings this into his life. He says this, the Lord take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, what's interesting here is he doesn't pray to the Lord. He doesn't ask God to do it, right? This is one of the signs that it's not real. It's like, could somebody else take care of this for me? I don't want to do the hard work. But then we see even something else I want you to see. Look at verse 9. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and for your people that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. So he basically says, okay, when do you want me to take away your idols? And this is a really interesting way to know what true repentance is. They say, when would you like me to take your idols away? Look at his answer. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. True repentance says, Lord, I'd like you to do this today. Fake and false repentance says, Lord, I'd like you to do this tomorrow, right? Because here's the truth. You and I will do anything tomorrow. You'll eat healthy tomorrow. You'll exercise tomorrow. You'll stop looking at porn tomorrow. You'll stop yelling at your spouse tomorrow. You'll start reading your Bible tomorrow. You'll, you'll call that friend and share the gospel tomorrow. You'll, you'll confess that sin and deal with that addiction tomorrow. The only problem with it is today. Today keeps showing up. It just, you wake up and it's never tomorrow. It's always today. And the Bible has a theology of today. And so often we want to hold on to our sin, if we're honest, just one more time. We just want one last time to enjoy it. We don't view, as the Apostle Paul did, we don't view repentance as the ability to, to escape the pain of sin, the pollution of sin. We often view giving into sin as pleasure itself, not an escape from pleasure. But here's the second thing he does, and this is even more common. Look at verse 
um, 15. If you'll skip down to verse 15. Pharaoh's just such an honest picture of who we are. But when Pharaoh, so basically he he gets the frogs out of here. Um, Moses does. It says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he got relief. He hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. What this is talking about, and it's so hard to tell in our lives, is he's talking about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Because let's be honest, there's two ways that sin comes forward, and sin is found out. Confession or getting caught. I mean, maybe there's other ways, but the two ways that oftentimes we end up finding out about somebody's sin, or somebody finds out about our sin, two options, I can confess it, or I get caught. Guess what happens most times? People get caught. And usually at that point, it's, it's been going on for a long time. They've been lying about it for a long time. They've been hiding it for a long time. And so when they get caught, what's that, when, when, when you catch somebody in their sin, or you get caught in your sin, everybody around you realizes the past isn't what they thought it was. For however long this has been going on, they, they thought the past was fixed, but they looked at the past and go, I thought, I thought that was what was going on in the past, but it wasn't. And so what will happen is immediately, you know, say you get caught and your spouse gets very upset about it. It's very, very hard to know in that moment if you're having godly sorrow or worldly sorrow as a response. The person who sinned and got caught. It's like, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're crying and sad because you lost your job because of your sin, which is understandable, but not a Christian, a uniquely Christian response. You know, maybe you're really sad that your wife's mad. Maybe you're really embarrassed that somebody knows what you did. It's like, you know, it's so hard. It's hard to tell even in our own hearts. I will encourage you to say a lot of times, be encouraged if somebody comes to you and they do confess sin, because this happens every once in a while. Particularly a spouse or a child will come to a parent or, or a spouse and they'll confess something. And I've seen this, and a lot of times they confess it and the person gets really mad, which is an understandable response. It is. But also be encouraged to realize that this person had to think a lot through this. They had to wrestle with a lot of things to get to the point where they felt like they could tell somebody else. They could give somebody else the fine china of their life. But what we see in the life of Pharaoh is he doesn't really want to change. He doesn't really want to repent. Because as soon as things get good, he forgets about God. Which leads to the last thing he does. He tries to make deals, bargain, and compromise with God. Which is so, I mean, this is what we do. We harden our heart until God attacks our idols. Then we say we'll change, but often it's not maybe true heart change. It's, it's, it's I, just want things to be, I just want things to be back to normal. I just don't want anyone upset with me anymore. I just want this to all go away. And so the final thing he does, and I want you to see this, is he, he tries to say to God, okay, I'll obey you in certain areas of my life. This is Pharaoh. But I'm not gonna fully obey you. And I want you to, it happens three times. I want you to see this. Uh, follow with me for a second. In chapter uh, 8, verse 25, it happens for the first time. If you'll go down to 8, uh, verse 25. It says this. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, so this is after a couple plagues. He finally comes to them. He says, go sacrifice to the Lord, but within the land. Now, was that what God said? No. Right? God said, go, sacrifice the Lord. It's going to be a three-day journey. You've got to go into the wilderness. Pharaoh's basically saying, um, you can obey God's word in part. Then look at verse, you've got to go down to chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. should be on the screen behind me. Here's, a, here's another place. I just want you to see this. There's three different times where Pharaoh does this, and he does it in three different ways, right? Because we, we want to figure out how little of God's word do we need to obey. 
What's the minimal amount of obedience that God will accept that I can stay comfortable? Here's what he says. Um, and they're going back and forth. And, and, but, but he said, this is Pharaoh, but he said to them, chapter 10, verse 10, the Lord be with you if ever I let you go, your little ones go. Look, you've got some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord. For that's what you're asking. And they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. So the next time he says, fine, you can go out into the wilderness, but just the men, not the women and children. Well, look at the very end of the chapter, chapter 10, verse 24. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. So this time, hey, go serve the Lord, go into the land, go women and children. And then he says this, only, put, he puts his own restrictions, only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. So they couldn't fully obey the Lord because that was all about sacrifice. Now, I just, this is what we do, right? We do one of, we're probably more sophisticated than even this. I'll give you two things how we try to compromise. Uh, the first way we try to compromise is we say, God, I'm only going to obey you partly in this area of my life. You know, which is, doesn't, give you an example. Because, you know, let's be honest, God's commands are, well, the scripture says they're not burdensome, but they appear to us at times overwhelming. So I think about, you know, God's command that in Ephesians 5 verse 2, it says, let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you. And most Christians go, okay, not even a hint. That's a really, really high standard. You know, so how about just a little bit of pornography? Just every couple months. Is that okay? Okay, not that. Okay, then just a fantasy life, but only before I go to bed. It's like, this is what we do. We, we want to know what is the least, we, can, we don't want to fully obey God's word. We feel a sense of guilt and we need to do something. So we try to make our own rules and our own restrictions and our own ways that we think we can live that out. You know, then God's word says, you know, and Christians can debate and discuss a little bit and have dialogue over, you know, giving. But, but there's no question the Bible says make giving a priority, choose a percentage. Many and most Christians believe that the tithe, 10% is a great place to start, a basement, not a ceiling. But I mean, how many people just go, you know, nope, not going to do that. That's one area of my life where, okay, you know, I'm going to, you know, I make plenty of money, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to occasionally, you know, drop a 20 in the plate because it soothes my conscience. And that sounds reasonable. It's like, well, what is it? That's us making our own rules, right? Because it's like, well, what would it look like? And, and just in this room and everyone watching online, what would it look like if everyone in here just said, you know what, I'm, instead of compromising, I'm going to fully commit. Every, just choose an area. I'm going to fully commit, and I'm going to believe the grace of God in that area of my life. I'm going to fully commit. Everything the Bible says about marriage, I'm going to do, and it's going to be so hard. But I'm going to believe the grace of God in my life, and I'm going to actually sacrifice for my wife, and I'm actually going to submit to my husband. And we're going to be a picture of Christ in the church. I don't care that it's going to be hard in this culture to do that. We're going to be a generous family. We're going to give, serve, give, save, live. We're gonna raise our kids. It's gonna be hard and who knows how, but we're all in. We're all in with raising our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I think that's where the power comes from when we say we're all in. The second thing they do is they, there's just certain parts of, our, of the word of God that we never let it touch and, and talk to us. So the first thing is we obey what we know of God's word in part. Other things, there's just certain areas that we don't even let the word of God speak to our, our life. Let me give you an example. There's some people who just, they think the verses about them having to forgive people are for somebody else. Because it, there's, there's, let's be honest, there's part of it that feels good to be a little bitter and resentful sometimes. And, and plan spiteful revenge in your mind and heart toward people instead of forgiving your mother-in-law. 
or forgiving your dad. And what we see here is, is what Pharaoh does is a temptation that we all do. We don't want to say, Lord, I want to fully commit to your word. I want to experience real repentance. I want a humble, soft heart that responds to the word of God. So what God ends up doing is he sends a final plague that we'll talk about the, ni- we'll talk about the 10th plague next week. But the ninth plague is the plague of darkness. And the plague of darkness, it says, if you read it at the end of chapter 10, it says it was a darkness that could be felt. And it was a darkness that lasted three days. And when you hear about the darkness, if you know your Bible at all, you might remember that there's a scene in the New Testament where a darkness also appears. It's not a darkness of three days. It's a darkness of three hours that appears when Jesus Christ is on the cross. See, what Jesus Christ did is he came into the darkness as the light of the world. And what Jesus Christ did was he took on himself all 10 of the plagues. He experienced them for us. How did he get boils? Well, he was beaten to the point we could not recognize him. When they stuck the the, uh, spear in his side, just like the Nile, blood and water came out. Instead of hail coming from heaven, hell and the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. Because what's so interesting, one of the themes I didn't get to touch on that you'll see if you read chapter 7 through 11, is after the first three plagues, God says, I'm going to make a distinction between my people and the Egyptians. And he, and he says something really powerful. He goes, there's one place where it will be safe, where the hail won't come and the flies won't come, where the boils won't come. Let me tell you where that is. He says, it's in the land of Goshen. There's one place. And what we know is there's only one place where Christians can be safe, where people can be safe from the wrath of God. It's when we repent and believe and we're in Christ and we're at the cross. That is the place of safety. That is the place of salvation. And what I want us to do is I just want us to take a moment and I want us to respond because, you know, after the first service this morning, I got an email from somebody, I guess, who was watching online. And um, I read it in between services and the lady said to me, she was a very nice lady, she said, I have a hard heart. What do I do? And I appreciated that. She said, I have a hard heart. Is there any hope? And, you know, that's what the gospel does, what grace does is it softens the heart. That, that's, it's like, well, how do you soften a really hard heart? Well, you got to look to the cross. You got to go, okay, look, I'm so terrible that God had to send his own son and kill him. And when I look to the cross, I can't be prideful. It softens my heart to look to the cross and see that I'm a big sinner. And when I see that God was willing to send his one and only son to die in my place because he loved me so much, it, guess what it does? It softens the heart. And so what I want us to do, if you'll, if you'll bow your heads, close your eyes, I just want us to respond right now. Because what, what got Pharaoh in so much trouble was a hard heart. There's, there's comfort in a humble heart. There's comfort in a soft heart. And I just want to give you a moment to respond to the Lord and to soften your heart. To say, Lord, I, I, I want to truly repent, whatever it is. Some of you, you're saying today. Some of you, you're saying tonight. You're saying, when I go home, this is what's changing. When we get in the car, this is what's happening today, tonight. Some of you, your heart, all of our vertical problems, are, all of our horizontal problems are because of a first vertical problem. And some of you, your heart is hard towards somebody. Some of you, your heart is hard toward your parents. 
and you need to release it, you need to forgive them, you need to soften your heart. Some of you, your heart is hard toward your children. You need to soften your heart. You need to ask the Lord for the grace of God to soften your heart. Some of you have been hurt. You've been hurt by church leaders. You've been hurt by Christians. You've been hurt by churches. You need to soften your heart. Grace does that. Lord, we thank you for the grace of God. Lord, as painful as it is, and it is painful, we thank you that you attack our idols. You attack the things that we worship, and you show us how foolish and futile they are, Lord, how only you can meet us. We thank you for the hope we have in Christ. It's in his name we ask. Amen.